The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. We are picking up with where we left off last week. And if you remember last week, this is kind of a continuation of where they were last week on the mountain where he fed the 5,000. And there was that miracle. That was the third miracle that Jesus performed. And then we will see the fourth miracle or the sign is what John actually calls it. And so if you, if you go back, you understand that John is painting a picture. He's using each one of these signs to declare who Jesus is. He wants to reveal who Jesus is so that we may believe and then believing that we may have eternal life. That's what he tells us there at the end. So last week we saw Jesus perform that miracle of feeding 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. It was reminiscent of God feeding them in the wilderness. Uh, it was reminiscent of a better uh, Elisha who also was able to multiply bread. Um, so there's all kinds of things that fit into this. Even that you could carry that motif into this week where Jesus is walking on water. There was a time when Elisha actually made an ax head float on water. So you have there again, a picture of two things that are not supposed to be on top of water, on top of water. So there's all these different illusions and we're going to find it in our passage today. And I want to show you that because I think it's an incredible story, but it speaks more of applicability into our own life than just the story of John or the story that John is presenting to us. Remember I told you this is the third, or last week was the third miracle or third sign. This week is the fourth. Let's remind ourselves of where we've been so far. First was water into wine. The second was the healing of the official son. The third was the healing of the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda, and I got that mixed up. Fourth was the feeding of the 5,000. Fifth is today. So we're already just a few chapters in, really, chapter six, and we've already got five of the seven signs. John only gives us seven signs, and there's an eighth one, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Now that plays all into the fact that seven days of creation, and then the eighth day is a recreation. So Jesus, the resurrection from the dead is a picture of that new creation that we are in Christ. So there's all kinds of stuff that we're gonna get into here before long. Beautiful picture, so in depth, so intertwined the way John paints this whole thing. Obviously inspired by the spirit of God. But I wanna point out to you uh, the signs that he's given to us so far and um, how they kind of have these similarities. Number one, when he turned water into wine, uh, he never touches it, he just, says, hey, go take this to the master of the ceremonies. He tells the servants, hey, go and get some water and bring it in here. And, and so that miracle happens really without anybody even knowing what's going on. Then you go to the next one with the um, healing of the official son. Well, that's the guy who came to Jesus and in essence, Jesus just spoke it again. And it was one of those miracles that happened off in the distance. So it was kind of like, you know, not all that exciting in the sense Jesus just said, go, your son will be well. Well, nobody sitting there hearing it knew anything about the son being only the guy who went back and met those coming to meet him saying, he's better now. And when did he get better? Yesterday, the seventh hour, this is exactly when Jesus said it. So these miracles are for each person. Jesus isn't displaying himself to say, hey, everybody, look what I can do. Even the next one with the healing of the paralytic man at the pool. Remember, Jesus walks up to this one man, says, take up your mat and walk. And Jesus disappears into the crowd to the 
point. He doesn't even know who Jesus is when the religious leaders talk to him. Again, Jesus doesn't do anything but just speak these miracles. Last week, Jesus said to the disciples, hey, take care of these people. Oh, we don't have any money. What do you have? Give it to me. He says a blessing and he passes it out. Now, you would think that this is a miracle that everybody's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But think about the fact that everybody was hungry. So the only miracle that they experienced was the row they were sitting on. Because they saw at the end of that row, like, oh, there's not going to be any bread when it gets to me. And they keep, that guy got way too big a piece. Now, come on, guys. We had to share that. And then all of a sudden, it gets smaller and, and then he gets to it and he's like, oh, there's some left for me. And he breaks it off and hands it to the next person. And then he's doesn't care from that point forward, right? He's just like, num, 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 num. And, and the miracle just continues beyond him, row behind him, a row behind him. It wasn't until after everyone had eaten and they all began to look at each other going, wait a minute, how, how did we all eat? We didn't have enough. And then we have 12 baskets full. Then this chatter starts talking and that's when people start talking to one another going, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is exactly how God fed our people in the wilderness. This is amazing. This guy must be the Messiah. And so they were ready to hail him as king. Again, Jesus performs this miracle that isn't like this grandiose gesture of who he is. It's a miracle that happens quietly. It's amazing because that's a picture of Jesus's character. He's not about, hey, everybody gather around. I want to show you what I can do. He's all about demonstrating that he is God, but demonstrating in the most humble way that you could possibly do it. It's a, it's a beautiful intertwining of the character of God. And so it continues even into our passage today. So last week we saw where they were ready to hail him as king. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, hey, we got to get out of here. Now, why in the world would Jesus not take advantage of that opportunity? I mean, isn't that why he came was to establish his kingdom? And what great way of establishing the kingdom of having, you know, 5,000 followers who are ready to join you right now. They're ready to hail you as king. They believe in you. Well, this goes back again. Everything is introduced to us in those first couple of chapters of John. If you go back to John chapter 2, verse 23, let's remember what Jesus said back then. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name even then when they saw the signs and what he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So there John tells us that Jesus didn't trust this enthusiastic following him just because they saw miracles. These people weren't ready to hail him as king until they saw that he could provide for their needs, until he found, they found out that he can make bread appear out of thin air apparently. And so what, who wouldn't want a king like that? I mean, you wouldn't have to work. He just provides for you. He gives you all the stuff that you need. They were ready to hail him as king because that's exactly what they wanted as a king. Someone who would take care of all of their felt needs. But Jesus knew that as this story unfolds, he was not going to be the kind of king that they really wanted. And as affectionate as they are today, they would turn and the vitriol would come from them tomorrow. Jesus did not entrust himself to him. And so in this situation, there's no shock that Jesus didn't embrace the desire of the crowd. And instead, he wanted to get away from them. And even in the picture here, he wanted to be alone. And, and I want to bring out something here before we move forward. How often are we just like this crowd? How often are we ready to hail Jesus as our king when we have all the things that we need? 
when he comes through, when our prayers are answered just the way that we prayed them. Lord, make this happen. Lord, I need you to come through here. Lord, I need you to fix this. And it's fixed. And we're like, ooh, Jesus is Lord. But then all of a sudden, when it doesn't work out our way, how many of us back off of our allegiance to Christ? How many of us are like, well, I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if he really loves me. I don't know if he has my best interest in mind. You see, we're as fickle as this crowd, ready to hail him as king one day, and then the next day, just backing off of our allegiance altogether, disappointed and thinking, well, maybe he's not the kind of God that I thought he would be. Here's the thing. God is never going to be the kind of God you want him to be because he is already who he is. And he's not going to change that for any of us in here today. He is who he is because he is God and his character never changes. And that's the value of the one true God is that he doesn't change. I mean, think about serving a God who is going to be one way for you and a different way for me and like you more than he likes me because you do something for him that he likes or, you know, you're always doing the ceremonies perfectly or you always say the right things in your prayers. And who would want a God like that? that would, you would never know where you stand with him. But yet because God never changes and because he's gracious and good and merciful, we know exactly where we stand with him because he told us in his word, God never changes. And so it's all about us changing to fit what he desires for us, not him changing for what we desire of him. And we have to remember that because very easily our prayers can become just like these guys trying to get what we can out of God. But there's also a little interesting twist in this story. Notice that he sends the disciples away. Now it's not as obvious in the gospel of John or John's recounting of this story. So I think at this point, it would be helpful for us to back up and to see the big picture by bringing in the synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark who also include this same story in their gospels. And this gives us a fuller picture of this whole story. So I wanna go to Matthew and I wanna point out some of the details details that he gives to us. And then Mark points out one extra detail as well. So Matthew says this in chapter 14, Matthew recounts the same exact story. Verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples. Look at what it says. He what? He made the disciples. So in other words, that word right there in the Greek literally means he forced them. They did not want to do it. They didn't understand why. It's the picture of Jesus going, get in the boat, guys, get in the boat, guys. They're like, but Jesus, there's a crowd over there and there's plenty of food. There's like a party. And, and, and Jesus is like, get in the boat, get in the boat. And then stay in the boat. And he's pushing the boat out in the water. And he's like, go to the other side. I'll meet y'all over there. That's the picture that Matthew and Mark paint for us. He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So he tells us what he's doing up there. He goes up to the mountain and pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, literally in the dead darkest part of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him saying, 
truly you are the son of God. That's verse 32. So I skipped the whole part about Peter wanting to get out of the boat and, full, and making a fool of himself and all that kind of thing. So I skipped down to that part so you can see that last part, very, really the verse 33. And those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Now in Matthew, the book of Matthew, this is the second time they found themselves in a storm and Jesus calmed the storm. The first time, if you remember, he was asleep in the boat with them. So the storm is raging and these fishermen who obviously been in storms before, did not know what to do. And they finally woke Jesus up and said, are you just gonna sleep through this whole thing? Are you just gonna sleep here while we perish and die? And Jesus is like, oh my goodness. And he's like, wind, wave, stop. And it just stops and calm hits. And Jesus rolls over and goes back to sleep. You know, that's kind of the picture that you have there. And, but they make a statement. They actually ask a question in that first setting. They asked the question. They said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They don't know who Jesus is. But in this one, notice what they say again at the very end. Those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. The second time they don't ask a question, they make a statement. They don't call him a man, they call him the son of God. There's growth in this storm that they've been through. Now I wanna detail for you what Mark tells us in his gospel. He adds a couple of extra details. Mark six, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. So we know two of them now tell us that this was a forced thing. They did not want to get into the boat. He made them get in the boat, go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So again, we know that he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. So where he was on the mountain, he could see them. Mark adds that detail that the other two don't. That Jesus, even when he was praying, could still see the disciples and he saw them struggling. He saw them fighting against the wind and the rain. So Jesus walks out there, right, to save them. But look at how it continues in Mark. He gives us another detail, verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against him. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Look at the next part. He meant to pass them by. But when, he, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. So when you put all of that together, what you get is the crowd is ready to hail Jesus as king. And the disciples are eating this up. They're like, yeah, we're with him. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be like a general and he's gonna be like a sergeant. And he's like, I'm the general. And so they're all arguing about who's gonna be the most powerful and who's gonna be the leaders of this and that. And they're just basking in the favor of this crowd. The crowd's like, how long have y'all been with him? How many miracles have y'all seen? Oh, we've seen all kinds. Let me tell you about this one. I had to help him out a little bit with this one. But uh, we, I mean, like they're just telling all this. They're telling their stories and all these people are looking up to them and Jesus sees it for the toxic situation that it's becoming. And he's like, we've got to get out of here because you are beginning to act according to what other people are saying. Your heart and your desires are becoming focused on the praises of men. And Jesus says, we got to get out of here and I want you to get in that boat and I want you to go to the other side. Now, Jesus full well knows he's sending them right into a storm. So don't miss that. He takes them out of the favor of the crowd and he puts them in the fury of the storm. Why? 
because he need, they need to learn something about who he is and who they are. And he knows things about the crowd that they don't know because their heart is attuned to that kind of praise and that kind of adoration and that kind of respect. And he knows that that's fickle and it will destroy them and it's toxic for them. And so he gets them out of that bad situation and he puts them in a better one. But we would look at it and say, he took them out of a good situation and he put them in a bad one, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? Nod your head because you know when we look at it from our perspective, we're like, man, there was food, there was a party, and people were saying nice things. And you put them out there to like literally die. But yet when you understand it from the spiritual perspective, Jesus did what was right. He took them out of a toxic situation that could destroy their souls. And he put them in a situation where God would be revealed to them in a way that there was no other way they could experience him. You see, when we begin to understand God's economy and God's reality, it's far different than our own. What we would say is a good situation is very different than what God would consider a good situation. And that's what John wants us to embrace here. Notice that Mark actually tells us Jesus intended to walk right past them. He did not go out there to save them. Why? Because he told them to go to the other side. Guess what that means? They're going to make it to the other side. He wouldn't send them out there to their, their demise. He wouldn't send them out there and go, guys, I hope you make it. He knew full well they were going to make it. But when he heard them crying out and he heard the fear of their heart, he stopped because there was a different storm that was brewing. It was a storm in their heart, not just a storm on the outside, not just the circumstances and context. It was a fear that was inside of them. They literally thought there was a ghost out there. Now, the one thing we have to understand about Jews is the Jews are not seafaring people, okay? They did not like the ocean. A matter of fact, from a Jewish perspective, the ocean is evil. Uh, you can see that throughout all of scripture. Uh, if you go to the, the Jewish wisdom literature, uh, the Psalms tell us that God casts our sins into where? Depths of the ocean. In the book of Revelation, where does the monster come from? from the sea, right? So the Jews believe they throw their sins into the streams, the moving water and the water, the streams carry it to the river, the river carries it to the sea because the sea is evil. They always believe that the sea was evil. You even see it in Jesus when he cast out the demons from the demonic man, he cast them into the pig. Where do the pigs immediately go? They run into the water. So from their perspective, water is evil. So I want you to get a picture of this. When we think about the water being evil, there are all these symbolisms that will come out of this that will make so much sense of the story that John is trying to draw our attention to. So behind every story that John provides for us, there's always this deeper meaning that he wants us to gain from it. When we see the disciples struggling through the storm, it's a reminder for all of us, when we choose to follow after Christ, there will be storms in our life. If you think about it, Jesus takes his disciples out of the favor of the crowd and he puts them in the fury of that storm. Now, to me, the perspective that I have of this is there's two ways to end up in a storm. One is to rebel against God like Jonah did and he ended up in a storm. The other is to do exactly what God tells you to do and you'll end up in a storm just like the disciples did. So you're gonna end up in a storm either way. The difference is, what is the context of your storm? Is the storm God's 
retribution to you because of your rebellion, or is the storm an element that God uses to show his compassion and his love to you? See, the point is this, we're all gonna walk through storms in life. None of us are going to be saved from a life of tribulation and trouble. It doesn't matter if you follow Jesus or not, it's going to be a life of tribulation and trouble. The difference is who's gonna walk with you through your storm. Matter of fact, Jesus tells a parable in the book of Matthew, and he says that there's this rich man and there was this foolish man, and they were both building a house down in Gulf Shores. And it literally says that, Gulf Shores, if you look at the Greek. And it says that one of them wanted to be so close to the beach that he just built his house on the sand. And the other guy, he kind of backed off a little bit and he got a good firm foundation and he put some solid cement down at the bottom, some rock, some stone. And so he built his house on the rock. And here's what's interesting. He tells that as he goes on with the parable, he says that a storm came and the winds blew and the rain fell and the streams rose and they beat against that house. The house of the foolish man had a great demise. It collapsed and crushed and it was done. But the house of the man who was wise, it lasted through the storm. Now, what's amazing is Jesus tells that, he says the same exact conditions existed for the guy who was wise, as existed for the guy who is foolish, which tells us in this life, we're gonna go through difficulty. Whether you listen to God or not and obey him or not, you're still gonna walk through difficult times. The difference is what's gonna be the outcome of those difficult times. What are you gonna look like on the other side of those difficult times? And Jesus says, he who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice in the midst of storms will be one who will last. He will have eternity. His house will last through the storm. So. Notice that both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus made them get into the boat because he did not want them basking in the favor of the crowd. Instead, he wanted them to learn in the opportunity of that storm. Now, he knew something about their heart and the heart of that crowd. And Jesus puts all of those things together and he creates the perfect scenario for them to learn. Jesus makes them go out into the water and he makes them to go by themselves. Remember in Matthew, the first time he was with them, this time they are seemingly all alone. And now here's a good thing to think about. How often do we care more about what people think? Like the disciples did with the favor of the crowd? How often do we live for that kind of praise? Isn't it tempting to bask in the favor of the crowd? Think about it. Is that not what drives athletes today? I mean, y'all watched some of it yesterday, right? That guy runs a great, great display of athleticism and he crosses that goal line and he's like, what is he doing? Hey, y'all tell me how great I am. I wanna hear it. I wanna hear how good I am. I wanna hear what, what'd you think of that? You know, every time, what do they wanna do? They wanna hear it, they wanna hear it. They, want it. they live for the praise of the crowd. What about politicians? Man, don't they love the praise of the crowd? You see them get up there and they give them speeches and they say something really dumb and like very generic and people start clapping because they, you know, that's what you do at a political rally. And all of a sudden, what do they, they walk around the stage and they puff that out and they're like, they nod and they look and they nod at people. They love the praise of the crowd. What about celebrities? Oh, they love, they walk down that thing, they wave at everybody on the red carpet. Oh yeah, oh, I'll sign that for you, yes. They love the praise of the crowd. What about pastors? Hey, you know what? Pastors live for the praise of the crowd too. I'll be honest with you, it's very tempting uh, to preach a sermon, especially the difficult passages, to where you're gonna hear more positive than negative. It's very easy for pastors to play 
to the favor of the crown. Listen, it's in every one of us. Given the right circumstances, you will play the fiddle for the crowd because you want to hear them praise you. Very easily, we would find ourselves in the same situation as these disciples. And there's a whole lot of symbolism in the story, like I was saying earlier. Watch this. There's a mention of a mountain. There's a mention of a sea. There's a mention of a boat and the wind and the rain and the storm. So look at this right here. I wanna show you what those parallel or what they represent. It's very symbolic. A mountain is a place of authority. The sea is a place of evil. The boat represents our lives and the wind and the rain and the storm represent difficulties in this life. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because I can prove this scripturally. Number one, mountain is a place of authority. Think about where God lives. Where does he live? On the mountaintop. Where's the temple? It's on a mountain. Where did God deliver the 10 commandments? to the people from. He spoke from a mountaintop. Where did Elijah defeat the prophets of Baal and Asherah? It was on a mountaintop. Where was the transfiguration? It was on a mountaintop. Throughout all of scripture, the mountaintop is a place of authority. Matter of fact, when Jesus says, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, that's a lot of symbolism there. Actually, he was walking by the place where Herod's temple, or Her not Herod's temple, Herod's palace was where King Herod lived. He was saying, you can say to this mountain what it represents, this authority to be cast into the sea, which represents what? Evil, and it will be done. So in other words, one day, all the, the kingdoms of this world will collapse into their very evil, which they came out of. Okay. Now the sea, why is the sea a place of evil? I've already explained that to you, right? The Jews always thought about the sea as being evil and that was a place that evil comes from and that's a place evil goes to. What about the boat? The boat represents our lives, especially in this picture. What are they? They are in this boat. In this boat, they are buffeted by the wind, the rain, the waves. So it represents what is coming up against their life. And that's why the wind and the rain and the storm represents the difficulties that we have in this life. And if you think about it at the end, what did all three of those gospels say? That they asked Jesus or welcomed him where? into the boat, once they got into the boat. And so there's this picture of Jesus coming into our life. And when Jesus comes into our life, all of a sudden we can have peace in the midst of a storm. We can have peace in the midst of the difficulties of this life. That is the picture that we have over and over again. So when we apply these to what we know about the story, we get this picture of Jesus, listen to this, praying in a place of authority because he was on the mountaintop while the disciples were struggling in a place of evil because they were on the sea and they were being challenged by the circumstances of this life as they tried to steer and navigate it with Jesus not being there. Okay, now why is that important? Because this is a foreshadowing of the crucifixion. The same exact thing happens when Jesus is crucified. He is seemingly not there. They are being beaten by the circumstances that they can't explain. And they're trying to navigate their life through this without having any answers for what's happening. And it's evil that they're in the midst of. And Jesus is accomplishing the righteousness of God. Do you see this? I mean, it's incredible. This is why John is preparing us for what's coming. He's painting this picture of how Jesus is living out this story over and over and over again. And so... When you look at verse 16 and 17, read that with me. When, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now what? It was now what? Now, why does he repeat that? Look back at verse 16. When what came? So why, why does he have to tell us evening came? And oh, by the way, it was dark because we're good Bible students, right? And we're paying attention to the themes that John already introduced to us in chapter one. 
chapter one, he says that the light has come into what? The darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness is what is of this world. Notice that the disciples are in a boat and now they are in the dark. He literally says it is now dark in Jesus had not yet come to them. The light had not come into the story, had not come into the darkness. I think it's safe to say that we can link the absence of Jesus and the darkness that the disciples found themselves in. If you think about it, it's actually very reminiscent of how this whole gospel started. In the beginning, there was darkness and the light is introduced into the darkness. Also, we get allusions all the way back to creation. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter one, verse two. The earth was without form and void. And what does it say? Darkness was over the face of the, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of, what's that word? What does Jesus do at the end of the story? He's hovering over the waters. Again, it's an allusion back to the creation narrative. There is chaos in the earth. God wants to bring creation and order to it. There is chaos out on the sea. Jesus is going to come and bring order to it. Do you see this? What does the chaos represent? Our lives. Jesus comes in, makes sense of the chaos and brings peace in the midst of it. Not only that, you can go to Exodus and it's actually reminiscent of the Passover as well. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A, read this with me, a darkness to be. Have you ever felt darkness? How many of y'all have ever been to Soto Caverns? You ever been there? If you've been there, you've felt darkness because there's only three places in the world that you can experience, or three places in the universe that you can experience total darkness. Do you know where they are? One of them is the Soto Caverns or any cavern where you go into the heart of the earth, complete darkness. The other place on earth that you can go is where? Bottom of the ocean. It's the only place, only other place on earth that you can go. And the other is deep space. Those are the only three places that you can experience complete total darkness. And whenever you go to DeSoto Caverns, if you ever get a chance to go there, you go in there, they turn all, they get, take you down to this little place and it has lights everywhere. And they tell you the stalactites and the mosquito bites and all those different things that they have in there. And then they say, now we're gonna do this. We're gonna show you complete darkness. And so they turn the lights off and they said, all right, now what we want you to do is touch your nose. Y'all ever been there they did that? Dude, you cannot touch your nose. You, you go like, that's so dumb. And you go, ow, you poke yourself in the eye because one of the tests of total darkness is you lose your orientation because there's literally no light anywhere. And so you can't even like pick your finger up and just go right to your nose. You end up poking yourself in the face somewhere because you lose that orientation, right? Complete, total darkness. It says in Exodus, they felt the darkness. Look how it continues, verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was what kind of darkness? Pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days. How dark was it? They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. They didn't even get up and go anywhere because they couldn't see. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Notice that over the land, which is Egypt, which represents evil, there's darkness. But where Israel was, the presence of God, there was light. Now back to our passage. I want, to look here, I want you to look here with me at verse 16, or verse 18, I'm sorry. 
the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. So again, he's coming near the boat, but he wasn't coming at the boat. He was just coming near it because he was planning on doing what? Passing them by. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So get this picture in your mind. The disciples are already a long way from shore. All of a sudden this storm comes up and the strong winds and the waves and the heavy rains, and they begin to struggle because they are going against the wind. One of the gospels tells us literally they're going into the headwinds, struggling into it. Now, here's something important to remember. We, uh, why were they in this terrible situation? Because they listened to Jesus. Because they did what Jesus told them to do. That's why, because they were obedient. If they had just stayed where they wanted to stay with the crowd, they would be having a party. They would be eating those leftovers from the 12 baskets. And they would not be in the middle of a storm out there in the ocean, like fighting against all these elements. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever said to yourself, you know what, if I'd have just not done what God said, I'd have been much better off. If I'd have not married the person God told me to marry, if I'd have not taken that job that God told me to take, if I had not done what God told me to do, my life would have been better off. I would have been married to that person. I would have had that job. I would have been that kind of happy. Have you ever been tempted to think like that? They were obedient to what God called them to do and they found themselves in a more difficult situation. Listen to me, if there's nothing else that you get out of this, get out of this today. Christianity is the only religion in the world that makes sense of suffering. It's the only thing because in our suffering, there is Christ-likeness that's developed. I already told you that from Matthew, when he tells us the first time they were with the storm, who is this, who is this man that the wind and waves obey? The second time they worship him and they say, surely this man's the son of God. Why? Because there's growth in the storm. There is Christ-likeness in the storm. When we walk through those difficulties, we see him and we see ourselves in a completely different way and we grow spiritually through those opportunities. We don't grow at the parties. We don't grow when there's plenty. We don't grow in the favor of the crowd. What happens is we begin to leave Jesus and we begin to listen to those people and we begin to interact. And all of a sudden we find ourselves distanced from him. And then what God allows is that storm to come into our life that will bring us back face to face with him to realize our great need for him. Man, have you ever felt like listening to God put you in a worse situation? Man, I could tell you, I, I've done that. I've been there. I remember I dated a girl for five years here and I went to seminary following what God called me to do. And as soon as I got to seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, she dumped me and I didn't have a family member. I didn't have a friend because I'd spent the last five years with this one person. I didn't have anybody. And I remember thinking to myself, thanks a lot, God. What I commit my life to you, I changed the whole direction of where I was gonna go in my life and you bring me in the middle of Texas with not a friend, not a family member, 10 hours away from home and the one person I thought I was gonna spend the rest of my life with, you take her away too, thanks a lot. You ever been there? You ever felt like that? Hey, guess what? You're not alone. Because a matter of fact, you could go through the gospels and say, Moses, he would have never felt rejected by this complaining bunch of people if he would have just declined there at the burning bush, which he tried to do several times. 
Daniel would have never been in the lion's den if he had not committed himself to God in prayer. Isaiah would have never spent a life of preaching a gospel message that no one was ever going to listen to and no one was ever going to repent from, that he would never see one conversion in his entire life. Can you imagine preaching a sermon that no one is ever going to listen to for the rest of your life? He would not have had that if he didn't listen to God. Hosea, he would not have had to marry somebody named Gomer. Not only that was her name Gomer, she was a prostitute. And not only was she a prostitute, she was a prostitute who kept going back to her prostitution. Paul would have avoided all kinds of persecution if he would have just stayed in Tarsus. You see, but the flip side of that same coin is that these people would have never known the refreshing wind of the Holy Spirit flowing through their lives. The demonstration of God's goodness and grace through those difficulties, the Christ-likeness, and the righteousness that is built in us when we walk through those times and the dross of our life is burned away in the fiery trials. You see, following Christ will take us into some very fierce storms, no doubt, but the rewards are always greater. They're always greater than the trial. Now let's get back to the story for a second. Let's think about Jesus for a second here. John doesn't tell us a whole lot about where Jesus was or what he was doing. But when we look at the stories of Matthew and Mark, what we do is we get this clear picture of what Jesus was doing, where he was, he was praying. And from his vantage point, he could see the disciples out on the water. He could see them in the midst of their struggle. Now get that picture in your head. There they are from their perspective, they are completely alone. But what they didn't know was that Jesus was actually closer than they could realize. He knew exactly what they were going through and he planned to walk out there past them, go to the other side, but to be close enough to them to help them if they really needed it. You know, it should be very comforting for us to know that wherever we go, whatever we may go through, Jesus is there and he knows all the details of our difficult situations. When we're going through those dark storms, it's so easy to think that he's forgotten us. It's so easy that he sent us out there on our own to die. But he's aware of everything that's happening. The scripture tells us that he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. And he certainly knows the difficulties that he's allowed to transpire in our lives. Christ saw the disciples in their struggle. And yet, listen to this, he waited before he went out there. He waited. He knew their thoughts. He knew they were wondering, where in the world is Jesus? And yet he chose to let that storm batter them for a while. If you think about it, it actually becomes a theme of the gospel of John. When does he turn the water into wine? After somebody comes and says, we're completely out of wine. Well, I've been better for him to kind of get that going a little bit earlier, right? Nope, they're completely out. Then he turns water into wine. He doesn't heal the paralytic until he's been suffering for 38 years. He doesn't go to the official's house to heal his son like he thought that should have happened. Instead, he stays back where he is and says, just go back, I've, I've taken care of that. And eventually we're gonna see that some of his really good friends say, hey, our brother Lazarus is sick. Come and heal him because he's very sick. And Jesus doesn't. He waits until Lazarus dies. Matter of fact, by the time Jesus gets there, he's been dead for several days. They didn't even wanna roll the stone back because they said he's gonna stink. 
Jesus waited. Here, he doesn't save them from the storm. What he does is he saves them in the storm. One commentator puts it this way. Jesus came to his threatened followers during the darkest part of the night when the disciples were exhausted, miserable, and tired, wondering if they were going to survive. Only then did the Lord come. It's like they had to get to the end of themselves. They had to get to the point where like, our power is not gonna take care of this. Our resources aren't gonna take care of this. Our circumstances aren't gonna relent. We're gonna perish. Now that they have come to the end of themselves, Jesus walks into the scene. See, a lot of times the circumstances, the difficult circumstances of our life are meant for us to come to the end of ourselves so that Jesus can come in and resurrect that new creation. Because as long as we think there's something worth saving there, there's something worth kind of keeping so we can dust it off and maybe add, you know, Jack 2.0, uh, we, 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 we want to hold on to those parts of our lives. But Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to have to let you walk a little further. I'm going to have to let you struggle a little bit more. I don't want to do this to you, but it's the only way that you will learn that you have nothing that can last into eternity. You have to be made a new creation from the inside out. Until we've come to the end of ourselves, God can't create something new within us. Let me just tell you this. You may think that you know Jesus, but here's the reality, okay? Here's the reality. You don't fully know Jesus until he comes walking out in the midst of the darkness and the depression and the calamity of your life. Now, I'm not saying you can't be saved without being like in deep, dark depression. What I mean is this. There is deep intimacy that we gain through walking through those difficult times that you would never, ever, ever gain unless you walk through them. There's an intimacy that you develop with God when you walk through those struggles and you realize that he's there and he's your father. There's another interesting thing about this story. Apparently when Jesus comes out to them, it creates a wholly different storm what happens is a physical storm on the sea becomes a terrifying, fearful storm in their heart. Because as Jesus comes out there, they don't know it's Jesus. They think it's a, yes, because remember again, they do not like the sea and the sea is being evil to them right now. And so the only thing that could be is a ghost. And that is a guy who had been on the sea before who his boat capsized and his boat's at the bottom of this place somewhere and he died. So he has to now walk the face of this ocean, the sea, this lake, every time there's a storm, because that's what he does, because he is a ghost. That's an apparition that they are seeing right there. And so they think this is completely a ghost. So a, a, a storm at sea now becomes a storm within their heart. You see this? Now, the first one, they know how to kind of fight. Now, again, they, they're fishermen. They've been in these storms on the Sea of Galilee before. Matter of fact, there is a meteorological explanation for these storms. The sea there is actually protected by a lot of mountains around it, and it's very low. So what happens is either the hot air or the cold air would come over the mountain and mix with the opposite that's there at the sea, depending on the time of year, and that would stir up the air, and these storms would just develop out of nowhere, and they would be very fierce. And basically what the fishermen would do is they were like, we just got to keep this thing afloat because 
because the storm will eventually pass. It's kind of like here. You know, we see those storms coming. We know just bunker down and you just get all the kids in the dugout because we can start playing baseball in about 10 more minutes because this thing's going to be out of here as fast as it comes on us. Don't we do that? We do it because we know. They did the same thing, but apparently the storm never left. It just stayed and stayed and stayed. So they're sitting there fighting. They're like, all we got to do is keep this up. Now, all of a sudden, they got something they don't know how to fight. They have something they don't have an answer to. They have something they don't have an experience with. There is a ghost that comes on to the scene. And I think the application here is this. When Jesus comes to us in our storms, he doesn't always come in a way where he's expected or even easily recognized. Sometimes when God comes into our difficult situations, we see him as a worse addition to what we're already struggling with because we don't recognize him for who he is. But oftentimes God will come into our situations and he doesn't just step in there and go, hey, I'm God. But what happens is kind of like Jesus when he's walking with them on the road to Emmaus and they're sitting there talking and he's explaining the Old Testament to them and they don't know who he is. And as soon as they realize who he is, poof, he disappears and he's gone. Sometimes Jesus comes to us in the difficulties of our life and we don't really know who he is. Sometimes he comes in, in the form of another person who's an accountability partner, who's, man, they're hard on you. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's another situation. God comes to us in so many different ways and we often don't recognize him for who he is. Think about this. When they saw Jesus thinking he was a ghost, I bet you they started paddling away from him. Don't you think so? I mean, do you think they paddled towards him? Look, a ghost, let's go get a closer look. You know, that's not the picture that they had. They were like, I hear banjo music. You know, they're starting to paddle away from this thing. They're like, this is only be bad. Only bad things happen. So they're paddling away from all of this. They're getting away. Isn't that true of us so many times that when we walk through the difficult circumstances of our life, we will find ourselves going away from God instead of going to him. Because there's that growth that needs to happen in the storm that we get to the point where we recognize him. Look how it continues to verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. I bet they were. And immediately, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, this seems to be a very odd verse. Obviously, they were glad to take him into the boat. That's not the hard part to understand. The hard part to understand is the last part of that because it's a little bit peculiar. How were they immediately at the land that they were going? I mean, it says that they were in the middle of the sea. And as soon as Jesus gets into the boat, immediately they were on the land where they were supposed to go. And I actually think the answer to this is found when we put the other gospel stories together. Follow me on this and tell me if there's not this deeper, rich meaning here. In Matthew's account of the story, it tells us that when Jesus got into the boat and he calmed the wind and the waves, that the disciples saw this power that he had over creation. And they made this declaration in verse 33. Truly, you are the son of God. And then it tells us that they, what? Worshiped him. So John's telling the same exact story. Let's put Matthew's commentary in there. They welcome Jesus into the boat. He calms the winds and the waves. They make the declaration, you are the son of God. They fall to their knees and they begin to worship Jesus. And listen to me, they get so caught up in their worship that they forget about the boat. They forget about the circumstances until all of a sudden, boom, 
where it land? It's not that they teleported there. It's that they got so caught up in Jesus. They got so caught up in the fact that he came to their rescue. They got so caught up in the fact that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he has power over all these elements that threaten their lives, that they forgot about what was happening around them. And listen to me, they somehow got from the middle of the lake to where they were supposed to go, listen, without paddling, without putting up a sail. Do you know why they got there? Because on the other side of the boat, Jesus says, go to the other side and I'll meet you over there. And Jesus never lies. They probably never had to paddle a single, I guarantee you, they got in that boat and just sat there. That boat said, and it would just start making its way across there. The wind would have gently, the movement of the ocean, it would have found itself exactly where it was. See, sometimes in life we struggle. We try and make things work out the way they're supposed to. We try and force situations to go the way we want them to go. But here's the answer to our difficult situations. We worship. And when you get caught up in Jesus and you make him the desire and the passion of your life and you get caught up in him, all of a sudden in your life, you find yourself where you're supposed to be and you didn't even do anything to get there. That's the key to this. When we get caught up in who Jesus is, when we understand that he is the one who's directing our life, not us, when we understand that he is good and he can be trusted, when we understand that even through those difficult times, what we need to do is not fight the difficult times, but to commit ourselves, dedicate ourselves to worship and adoration of the one true God. In those situations, we will lose sight of what's happening around us because we are so enamored and in awe of the son of God, the power that he has over circumstances, over the things of this life, over the evils of this world. We need to become preoccupied with Jesus. I think the application of that is obvious. I could give you all kinds of illustrations of what that looked like, but I think that you can make those connections yourself. Following Christ will certainly bring us into difficult times. It's gonna bring storms into this life storms into this experience. It's inevitable. James tells us, count it all joy when you enter into trials of various kinds. It's a promise. However, we can take great comfort in the fact that even in our darkest hour, in that fourth watch of the night, he's watching us and he's praying for us and he knows exactly what we're going through. He's been there. He understands and he does care. No matter what you think, no matter how far you think he is away, he cares. He's watching, and at the right time, he's going to come walking out there. And if you're willing to let him into your boat, he can calm the storms of your life. He can bring peace to that troubled heart of yours. And you can become so enamored with him that this life that you thought was so difficult to direct it, all of a sudden you find yourself exactly where you want to be, exactly where God would have you to be exactly fulfilling what you were created to accomplish. Let me ask you this today. What kind of storms are you walking through in your life right now? Whatever it is, know that he sees you. Believe it. Let that bring peace to you in your storm. Learn to apply that in your storm. Revel in the fact that at just the right time, help's going to arise, arrive from up on high. Help was on the way 
long before the disciples ever knew it. And in your situation, you may feel like God's a long ways away, but he's way closer than you think. Do you ever feel like you're surrounded by darkness? Do you ever feel like you're surrounded by a darkness that you can literally feel? Do you wonder if there's a way out? Listen to me. Keep expecting him to come because he often comes in the heaviest darkness. Be aware of the hand of God working in your life. Wait patiently in that storm. Is your life filled with all kinds of uncertainty in your job? You know the best thing you can do? Invite him into your boat. Is your life filled with all kinds of insecurity? Invite him into your boat. Is your life filled with one struggling relationship after another? Invite him into your boat. Do you find yourself in some kind of ethical dilemma or a spiritual mess? Invite him into your boat. Invite him in. Let yourself stand amazed in awe of him. Let him lead you to worship him. Give your attention. Give him your focus. And all of a sudden, don't be surprised when you find yourself exactly where you're supposed to be, where you could never get on your own. Amen? There's a lot to apply from this. And may the Holy Spirit give you the wisdom and the power to make the changes in your life to match what this says we can be. Let's pray together. God, may you be honored. May you be glorified in all things. Lord, as we wrap our minds around a deep truth, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would come and make sense of it all. That you would not only help us to understand it, but that you would give us literally the power to live it out. We ask that you would add a blessing to the teaching of your word, that those who are wise and hear it and put it into practice would find the seeds of this familiar story growing in their lives in a very unfamiliar way, not just something that we know that maybe we've become numb to, but may we stand in awe of you again, how you keep telling the same story over and over again in different ways to reassure us because you know what our greatest fears are. And you've come to conquer those fears, not through who we are or what we have, not through our own abilities, but through recognizing who you are and staying out of your way. God, may we, may we truly learn to worship you in ways that we never have before. And we ask this in the powerful and sovereign name of Jesus, our Lord, amen.